0: Today, we're going to speak about Genesis 4, verses 1 through 16, and this is entitled East of Eden. In 1952, some of you may know that John Steinbeck wrote a novel called East of Eden. It's a book which wanders through the subjects of depravity, beneficence, and love. It details the human struggle for acceptance and greatness and freedom, and it also relates man's capacity for self-destruction. East of Eden ties together themes with a heap of references from the Bible. I don't know if you know that or not, if any of you have read the book, but there are a lot of parallels from the Bible, especially from chapter 4 of Genesis. In the book, Steinbeck uses many allusions to Cain and Abel. An interesting parallel is his use of the first letters of their names, C and A, for the first letters of the main people in the, uh, the book, such as um, Charles and Adam, Caleb and Aram, Aaron, Kathy Ames, and other people. And then throughout the book, there are all kinds of fun parallels that he tucks away in there, and there are contrasts to the biblical account, some of which are so well concealed that you actually have to know your Bible pretty well and what he was thinking when he wrote it in order to see these parallels that he's put in there. For example, one of the guys, Charles, who is a C character, Cain and C, Charles gets a dark scar on his forehead when he's working out in his fields and he's trying to move a boulder in Genesis 4. Today we're going to see that Cain is given a mark by God. It doesn't say on his forehead though, so make sure you understand that. But if we compare other marks that are put on people throughout the Bible, it is almost unanimously on the forehead of the people. So uh, it's a good guess that that is what is going on. In another uh, parallel in the Bible, uh, C character, again Cain and C, Caleb is the guy's name, He's described as having a more dark and sinister appearance than his opposing character, which is Aaron. And again, we're going to see the same parallel today where Cain is much darker and more sinister than Abel. If you pay attention to the book, you can see all kinds of fun parallels like this. So if you're studious enough to look East for him, Eden. East of Eden, good book. So please check it out, and I think, I think that you'll enjoy reading it. Despite, though, being considered a very good book, a classic in its own time, East of Eden has not come close to the total number of sales of the Bible, and it has not lasted throughout the thousands of years that the Bible has, from Genesis all the way through to the book of Revelation, and even that was 2,000 years ago. In the end, it is the Bible which is the source of understanding for human history, human nature, and the only highway that we can take to that wondrous spot that we left so long ago. Everything else, including his book, after all, is a knockoff of the original. And it was printed, yes, east of Eden, outside of the Garden of Delight. Our text verse for today is from 1 Samuel 15. It says, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness as the sin of iniquity and idolatry. So may God speak to us through his word today and may his glorious name ever be praised. Our first thought is great expectations and dashed hopes. This is verses one and two. Now Adam knew his wife and she conceived and bore Cain. And she said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Then she bore again, this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. Now in the NIV, it's translated just a little bit differently. It says, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. In these two simple verses that I just read though, we see the hope of a woman who is looking for her return to paradise. And then the dejection when she realizes that she must have misunderstood what God had previously said to her. If You remember his curse of the serpent back in chapter three, God said this to the serpent, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Eve was standing right there, we know that from the context, and she heard everything that was said. She had heard that her seed would be the one to undo the treacherous works of the devil through the serpent. And when she named her son Cain, or Cain in Hebrew, she exclaimed, I have acquired a man with the Lord. The word acquired is from the Hebrew word kaneti, and it's where kain comes from. As we travel through the Bible, it's a good thing to remember now that you will see this pattern occur again and again and again. If you're in the Bible studies on Monday or Saturday, you know this. Every time somebody's named, the explanation is given in the sentence. The sentence gives you the name of the person, and then a very similar word is used in there, which is based on the name of that person. And there is quite a bit involved in what is what Eve says here she says I have acquired a man with the Lord the Hebrew word for with in this sentence is very important it is translated from the Hebrew word "et." however another word could have been used the word is "im." the difference between these two words is immense and it signifies what she was thinking in saying that she had acquired a man with the Lord She was actually taking credit for what she thought would be the delivery of her deliverer. Think of it this way. If I say that I am writing a book with a typewriter, then the typewriter isn't really doing anything. Instead, I am doing the work and the typewriter is simply a passive participant in the publication of the book. However, if I say I am writing a book with my brother Ethan, for example, then he is an active participant in the process, and he deserves more credit than simply the ink going onto the paper, okay? We both put in effort, and we both deserve the benefits that come from the effort that we've put forth. And this is exactly what Eve was claiming when she used the word, eh, instead of him. She said, it's me, I have acquired a man, and I did it with the Lord. We are working together to bring in our deliverance." So, there's a lesson that carries through the rest of the Bible. In the book of Jonah, we read this, right at the end of chapter two of the book of Jonah. It says, salvation is of the Lord. In Ephesians, Paul explains it this way, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, and not of works, lest anyone should boast. Eve's idea that she had something, anything to do with her salvation is completely misguided. The Lord is the one who works out our salvation and he did it and he continues to do it in his own timing. Most of us have people that aren't saved and we pray for them every day and we think, why is the Lord delaying? It's because it is up to him when somebody comes to him. There will be no boasting when we stand before God and we proclaim what he alone has done for us. As Mary wisely said, when she was told that she would be the savior of the world here's her words behold the maidservant of the Lord let it be to me according to your word there was no boasting there was no claim of participation in the effort and in her song of praise a few verses later she places all of the credit on God alone she says my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God my savior for he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Mary is mentioned only a couple more times in the entire Bible. The last time we see her is in Acts chapter one, and she is never mentioned again. And in all of the times that she's mentioned, attention is never drawn to her. She's just a, a participant in the unfolding drama of the Lord's work of our salvation. Going back to Eve though, we see that immediately after naming Cain, the very next words are words of dejection and they are words of hopelessness. Here's what it says, then she bore again, this time his brother Abel. The Bible does not tell us how old Cain was when (coughs) Abel was born, but he was old enough for Eve to see that he was not the one that would restore her to Eden. And we can know this simply by the meaning of Abel's name, which in Hebrew is Hevel, or breath. And this is the kind of breath that you can actually see disappear on a cold day. It's just a mere mist. In the book of Ecclesiastes, the same word Hevel is translated in the King James Version as vanity. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity, says Solomon. And in the NIV it says meaningless meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. By the time Abel or Hevel arrived, her outlook on life had gone one from being the boastful woman who had a part in her own salvation to the unhappy surrender of a dejected soul that would spend the rest of her life living out her days and life under the sun, never returning to the bliss that she had known in the Garden of Eden. Always vanity disappearing mist in a cold and meaningless world. And then to finish out verse 2, we read that Abel was a keeper of the sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. In this thought, we can't find any fault in the profession of either of them. Some people do try to find fault between the profession of them. We can't find that in there. Moses, David, and a host of other biblical characters tended flocks just like Abel did, but numerous others tilled the ground or worked in agriculture boaz if you remember he's the great heroic figure of the book of ruth he was a tiller of the ground he had harvest that he he attended to and the prophet amos was both a sheep breeder and a tender of the sycamore fig tree what is apparent though is that both of these boys worked with their hands just as the sentence of adam in the garden of eden said they would both of these professions tending flocks and harvesting grain are used symbolically throughout the rest of the Bible to give us insights into the workings of God in general and the work of Jesus Christ in particular. If you follow these agricultural themes closely, if you read your Bible and you just follow the agricultural themes, you will better understand how the Creator deals with men in the process of redemptive mystery. Which brings us to our second point, the offering of faith, which is verses three through six. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit to the ground, of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. The opinions on why God respected one of these offerings and didn't respect the other offering are varied, and they are very highly debated over. Now, before I did this sermon, I reviewed a lot, many, many commentaries of the most noted uh, authorities in Christian history, and many of them give quotes that go all the way back to antiquity and the uh, Jewish culture, then there is no happy resolution to be found in any of these commentaries. The only proper way to determine why Abel's offering was accepted is to let the Bible interpret the Bible. And unfortunately, not one of the commentaries that I read actually did this. I'm going to note two of the prevalent views that have been given so you can see how different people look at what happened. The first is inferred from the terminology which is given in the verse that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord, whereas Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. The terminology of Abel's offering being the firstborn of the flock has led to the thought that Cain's offering was not of the first fruits of the harvest and therefore it wasn't the first and the best. Because of this, Abel's offering was accepted, it was a good offering, but Cain's offering was not accepted, it was not a good offering. Now this isn't a bad interpretation, but it must be inferred. And it also needs to be inferred that this was the time of the first fruits of the harvest. But that is something that we cannot infer from the text. We have no way of knowing that. If it wasn't the first fruit of the harvest, if it was the middle of the harvest season, then we can't assign this kind of guilt to Cain, all right? For all we know, they made their offering, like I said, right in the middle of the harvest season, and all it says is that he brought an offering of fruit of the ground to the Lord. Anything else must be inferred. The second opinion about why one offering was accepted and the other wasn't is that Abel's offering was a blood sacrifice, one for the atonement of sins, and therefore it was accepted by God, but Cain's wasn't, and it was unacceptable. To substantiate this view, it's noted that God killed an animal to clothe Adam and Eve, and therefore the precedent was made at that time. Unfortunately, this reads much more into the text than can be given. And when the Hebrew, when you look at it in the Hebrew, it becomes a view which cannot be substantiated at all. God provided the atonement or the covering for both Adam and Eve, but nothing more is told us in the account about that. To state that this was to be precedent for future generations is again taking our personal opinions and inserting it right into the account. Secondly, in both offerings the Hebrew word mincha is used. In the law of Moses a mincha is only a non-blood sacrifice. But the offering of both Cain and Abel are both called mincha. Okay, It would be inappropriate for us to take the Law of Moses and to go ahead and insert it into a date prior to the Law of Moses. But even if we could, because the term mincha is used, both are to be considered equally acceptable offerings. They are both mincha. Grain offerings are not only acceptable under the Mosaic Law, they are mandated under the Mosaic Law. If God accepted them, and they have the same term applied here before the Mosaic Law, then one being a blood sacrifice and the other not being a blood sacrifice is irrelevant. And finally, each offering came from the livelihood of the individual. In other words, Cain, he brought fruit of the ground, which is what he, he did, and Abel brought of the, the flocks, well, he was a flock or a, you know, a sheep breeder. There is no other direction which is given in the account of, before it, to indicate that they would have to cross the lines of their profession in order to make an offering. If this was the case, then something important would have, again, been left out of the story. But we can know 100 percent, 100 percent, why the offering was accepted and the second offering wasn't accepted. All we need to do is to look elsewhere in the Bible to get the answer. Now before I give you the answer, I wanna let you know that this is not a trivial thing. These are in here for our understanding. God didn't just put in an interesting story about Cain and Abel and say, well, I want you to know what two guys did in this. There is a very, very important reason why these things are being given to us. And I can assure you that just as we saw What was Adam lacking when he disobeyed God? We talked about this before. What was the one thing that Adam was lacking? He was lacking what? Faith. All right? And what was it that Adam had to demonstrate before God clothed him? Faith. And you will see this in every account throughout the Bible. That faith is what activates God's relationship with us. Here we go. This is um, Hebrews chapter 11. It says, By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and though he being dead, still speaks. The offering was an offering of faith, and it is faith which made the offering more excellent. If you understand this, you will understand the importance of faith in both testaments of the Bible. It was not faith that made Abel bring a more excellent sacrifice. In other words, I have a pile of gold here and I've got a pile of silver here, and I say, well, oh, I'm going to take the gold. That's not what made Abel bring a more excellent sacrifice. Instead, it was faith that made the <coughs> sacrifice more excellent. Let me read that again. It wasn't faith that made Abel bring a more excellent sacrifice. It, instead, it was faith that made the sacrifice more excellent. If you can understand the difference between those two concepts, then you are on the highway to the most complete and friendly walk with your Creator possible. It's the difference between seeing the outside and the And seeing the inside. That's exactly right. The rest of the Bible in both Testaments bears this out. It isn't the type of offering and it is not the amount of offering that God respects. It is the faith behind the offering. Here are two examples, one from the Old Testament, one from the New Testament, and then we're going to move on. The first one is from Micah. It says, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him? These are mandatory sacrifices that he gave in the law of Moses. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul he has shown you O oh man what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justly to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God the sacrifices that are mentioned there are exactly what the law asked for in fact in Isaiah chapter 1 these mandatory sacrifices are said to make the Lord weary He says here, I have had enough of burnt offerings and rams and the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hands to trample my courts? Who required these sacrifices? God did, and yet he rejected them because they lacked faith. God could not care diddly about the type or amount of offering if the heart is not right with you. When you present your offering to God, it is not an acceptable offering to God. Here's another example from the New Testament. Now Jesus sat opposite the treasury and saw how the people put money into the treasury and many who were rich put in much. Then one poor widow came and threw in two mites, which makes a quadrants. So he called his disciples to himself and said to them, assuredly, I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all those who have given to the treasury for they all put out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty, put in all she had, her whole livelihood. It took faith for her to put that money in there because it was all she had. But what is faith? It's believing that God will tend to her. And in the law of Moses, it says that you are to care for widows and orphans. And she knew that. And she was demonstrating that faith would be exercised for her benefit. Two mites were put in, and it meant more than all the other offerings that were put in to God because of her faith. The Lord looks for faith among his faithless creatures. So just a little bit will do. And that brings us to our third thought, which is a faithless life verses 8 through 12. Cain's offering was lacking faith and the Bible bears out that the rest of his existence was one of lacking faith as well we see that all the way to the last chapters of the Bible where he is mentioned in the book of 1 John his faithless deeds testified against him then and they still testify against him 6,000 years later when we read about what he's done Here it is, verse eight. Now Cain talked with his brother Abel and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? He said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed from the earth which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you a fugitive and a vagabond you shall be on the earth. Cain was the first recorded male born in human history and if you want to reflect on how ingrained sin is in each of us just look to this account and you can tell this first recorded son of Adam was both a murderer and a liar as we've seen right here. Another thing that these verses tell us is the confirmation of the premise that all human beings are born into sin born spiritually dead, and born separated from God. We have inherited Adam's Adam's sin in three ways, and I've brought these up several times in the past. We've inherited his sin legally, we've inherited it potentially, and we've inherited it seminally. And how can we tell? Because this is what the Bible teaches. First, the very fact that Cain murdered and lied indicates that he inherited Adam's sin. Second, Abel, when he was struck by his brother, died, and he did not resurrect. But the Bible doesn't have any record of Abel having committed any sin at all. But the wages of sin is death. Therefore, if Abel died and did not resurrect, then he must have inherited Adam's sin, or the Bible has left us without needed information concerning some other sin which Abel committed. You know that right there. Third, both sons Cain and Abel presented offerings to the Lord. And there is no record before that of a command or from God or for human in, in intervention. I'm sorry. These first recorded offerings occurred after the fall, and they take separation from God as a given. They were designed specifically to satisfy the innate desire to restore man's separation to God. In other words, this entire account shows us without any hint of a doubt that these sons of Adam were born in sin and they were born spiritually separated from God in a dead state the moment that they came out physically alive. After the rejection of his offering, Cain set the terrible, terrible pattern of sin which has continued on and it has infected many souls since he did this. He became defiant in his sin. Adam and Eve were truly scared when they had committed their sin against God. What did they do? They tried to cover themselves up, and they even tried to pass the buck to somebody else to say, you know, hey, it wasn't me. But Cain, when he was confronted, showed the hardness of his heart and his defiant attitude by first lying. He said, I don't know where he is. And then he got snippy with God when he said, am I my brother's keeper? So the question is, and we should address this before we go on, are we our brother's keeper. The answer is by necessity, yes, we are our brother's keeper. And it is by necessity, no, we are not our brother's keeper. The question is kind of a hint of truth from Cain, but at the same time, it is also a deceitful answer. He wasn't responsible for his brother in the ultimate sense. Abel could go wandering off with his flocks, And Cain was under no obligation to follow him around at the expense of his own fields and his own harvest. And we aren't responsible for anybody else in the complete sense if they have their right reasoning and they have a healthy body. They are their own keepers and they are their own problem. The things that they do are from their own free will. To limit that in another person is to subject them to slavery and to deplete them of the very thing which makes them human. On the other hand, yes, we are our brother's keeper. We're under the obligation from harming others maliciously, such as Cain did to Abel, and even taking care of what we harm unintentionally. Why do you think that we get insurance on our cars? Because if we hurt somebody, that is our way of taking care of something that we unintentionally did. We are also under the obligation not to hinder others from determining their own paths and their own avenues of happiness. And finally, Yes, we are to take care of those who can't take care of themselves. Both testaments in the Bible bear this out. And so yes, we are our brother's keeper. And no, we are not our brother's keeper. Everything in context and everything to the glory of God. The response that Cain gave here though is a cunning attempt to hide any culpability in the matter at all. He killed his brother and he wants to hide it. It is the response of a selfish, brutal and hate-filled soul. Unless God called him to an account of what he did, his murderous attitude would become the only standard on which anyone else could develop. In essence, the first sin recorded after the fall would be standard operating procedure for all humans. In other words, everybody is very closely related at this time. And they see him murder his brother, they know he did it, and nothing is done about it that becomes standard operating procedure. And you can see how quickly wickedness will come into a society when that happens. You see it in America happening right now. Any society that stops punishing wrongdoers immediately starts to degrade in this matter. God doesn't see and it is all up to me. But the Lord knew and he acted and the world was diverted at least for a very short time, about 1,650 years, from turning into absolute wickedness. Unfortunately, as I said, in about 1650 years, in chapter 6, wickedness once again would need to be dealt with. It is an ongoing problem throughout the Bible and throughout human history, and God has to intervene to deal with it. After his less than kind response to the Lord, Cain was told that the blood of Abel cried out from the ground. The word for blood here, believe it or not, is actually plural, and It brings up the question, does the blood itself, dame, or bloods, actually cry out from the ground? Or is it as early Jewish writers commented when they said that his posterity was crying out from the ground? In other words, either his children that did exist or children that could exist were crying out to God. This same type of terminology is used in 2 Kings chapter 9 when it's speaking of the death of a guy named Naboth. If you know that story, he had a field. It was next to King Ahab's field, King Ahab wanted it, he didn't get it, Jezebel had him killed, and here's what the prophet said, surely yesterday I saw the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons, says the Lord, when his sons weren't killed at all, only Naboth was killed. And this actually makes a lot of sense because when Abel sacrificed, it may have been for him and his family, just as when Job sacrificed for his own family. In the, later in the book of Job, the patriarchs would sacrifice for the sins of their family before the law of Moses. And this is even more validated in a few verses from now, we'll get to it, by what Cain said after the sentence is pronounced, a sentence which he had brought on him of his own self. We'll finish with this and then we'll go on to the next thought. The Lord said to him, so now you are cursed from the earth and when you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength for you. A fugitive and a vagabond, you shall be on the earth. This is the sentence of Cain for his actions, and his response shows how truly hard his heart is. Verse four, or thought four, east of Eden, verses 13 through 16. And Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Surely you have driven me out this day from the face of the ground. I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth, and it will happen that anyone who finds me will kill me. And the Lord said to him, therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord (laughs) set a mark on Cain, lest anyone finding him should kill him. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain was worried about his own punishment, which was less than it was deserved, when his younger brother, who was better than he was, was laying in the ground dead. He was left to wondrously aim the earth as a vagabond, and even the ground wouldn't yield for him. Whatever he sowed would fail. The Bible, throughout the Bible, makes a contrast of sowing unrighteousness and the harvesting of faith. Cain sowed the ground with the blood of his brother because he was jealous of Abel, but as we saw, it was by Abel's faith that his offering was acceptable to God. Cain's lack of faith instead of being converted through that lesson, ended up leading to the murder of his brother. And that would result in no harvest at all, even for the duration of his entire life. And we have exactly the same thing going on in the world today. Christians are being murdered in huge numbers for their faith by the modern spiritual successors to Cain, the peaceful religion of Islam. But in the end, those Faithful Christians will stand in judgment over those who kill the body, but cannot harm the soul. The way of Cain leads to death, inevitably, and the faith of Abel will last for all of eternity. After his sentencing, Cain cried out, I shall be hidden from your face. The greatest honor that a person can have is to have the face of God shine on them. And for this reason, the high priestly prayer, which I read week after week after week, not only includes that, but it includes it twice. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In Peter, it says the reciprocal is true for evildoers. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And in 1 Corinthians, it says that because of Jesus, faithful believers are receiving the reflection of the glory of the Lord with unveiled faces. Cain understood this sentence in his limited way and he cried out at the loss, a loss which he had brought on himself. Even to this day, Cain is the biblical example of the wicked son who remains forever out of the favor of the Lord. And then a couple of minutes ago, I said that it's possible that the blood of Abel crying from the ground may actually be referring to his offspring. Cain's next response may validate that. After noting that he was hidden from the face of the Lord, he says that it will happen that anyone who finds me will kill me. Obviously, anybody on earth at this time would be a close relative to Abel, but it is most likely that one of his own sons would try to repay Cain for what he did. And Cain's mark could be a result of this fear, one of Abel's sons coming after him. Despite his murder, though, we see a really, really wonderful demonstration of the Lord's mercy. In order to protect him, the Lord said, whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark on Cain, lest anyone finding him should kill him. The mark that was placed on Cain is different than the other marks that are placed on people later in the Bible. From mark here is the word ot, which means a sign. If you remember back in Genesis 1, it says the Lord put up the stars and the sun and the moon. And he says these are for signs and for seasons. That was the word "oat." This is a visible mark and a sign to anyone who would attempt to, to kill him. If they did, they would receive vengeance sevenfold or completely. There would be no mercy given for the murderer of this murderer. And that once the sentence was pronounced, we finish off with the verse that says, he went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod, east of Eden. The word Nod means wandering. And this fulfills the sentence that was just given by the Lord, that he would be a vagabond and a wanderer. And we can look to the Bible for modern parallels of this too. Cain went east of Eden, the place which was away from the presence of the Lord, on the east side of Eden. And that's where the cherubim were placed to guard the access back into the garden. And in the modern world, you see a symbolic parallel. Jerusalem is where the temple stood. And Babylon is, that's where God dwelt. And Babylon is east of Eden. Babylon today is where Iraq is. And Jerusalem is over here, the place where God dwells, where the people of God dwell. And this is in spiritual opposition to Babylon, which is over here. So when the people were disobedient to God, they were exiled out of Jerusalem. Where did they go? They went to Babylon, the place of punishment, the same as Cain. if You see the parallel in the Bible. On a greater level though, Babylon is the symbol of all false religions and all spiritual opposition to the gospel. There is a spiritual battle that's going on around us. We can read it the, about it in the book of Ephesians. It is between the sons of godly Abel and the sons of ungodly Cain. And it is going on even to this day in the world around us. The sad story that we read here in Genesis four will only be completely behind us when Satan is finally cast into the lake of fire. Until then, human wickedness and the forces of the devil are going to continue to fight against the truth of God and against his word, which are received by faith And demonstrated in offerings of faith by the people of God. Eve was elated, a son to undo the mess. Look at the deed that I have done. It was me who did it, and the Lord too, I guess. With the Lord I have acquired a son. Life will be great and life will be fun. Back to life under the heavens. No more life under the sun. Oh no, cried Eve, another boy to feed. Life is just a breath. I guess I'm stuck here under the sun. His name is Abel. He's no conqueror of death. It's all so meaningless. My hopes are undone. I'm Cain, and from my tilling, I'll give God a slice. I'm going to buy his favor with my stuff. My aim is Abel. My name is Abel, and I tend the flocks. They are so nice. But even the choicest and the best is not enough. I'm so pleased with your offering of faith, young Abel. I will bless you with abundance at your table. But Cain, what you've given wasn't from your heart i think you'd go back and make a better go back and make a brand new start cain murdered his brother and was cursed from the earth and set the example for an unrighteous soul instead of eternal hope from a new birth his life ended under the devil's control cain spent his years as a vagabond in the land wandering aimlessly and without a hope instead of fruits and grains he was left with barren sand all because cain Was a faithless dope. But God had mercy even on that murderous wretch. He gave him a mark to protect his life. As he wandered for a very long stretch, a man cursed from the earth, a man of strife. Will you be like Cain and follow the devil, losing your soul, your most valuable part? Or like Abel, will you be on the level and in Jesus Christ make a brand new start? Come to the fountain and drink waters of life. Eat of the manna offered freely to all, Set aside your life of toil and strife on the name of Jesus, it's time for you to call. Just so you know, before I finish, Cain was given a mark to protect his earthly life. But those who call on Jesus are sealed with the Holy Spirit of God as a promise of the coming redemption of our souls. The last chapter of the Bible says we will have another mark on us. This mark will be on our foreheads and it will be the very name of God an eternal reminder that we have been purchased by the most precious substance in the entire universe, the blood of Jesus Christ. It says, and there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. Next week, we're going to look through Genesis 4. 17 through 26, which is the line of Cain. So I hope you'll take a couple of minutes tonight, read that and meditate on that throughout the week. And let me go ahead and say a prayer and we'll finish up. Heavenly Father, we thank you so very much for the life of faith that we can live because of what Jesus Christ did for us. So All we need to do is just simply exercise our faith and say, I am a sinner and I can't save myself. I can't even participate in my salvation. All I can do is accept what Jesus Christ did calling on his name, believing that he has done everything necessary for me to be saved. And if there's any person here who is not called on the name of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that they will devote their lives to him and that they will call on his name and be saved and spend eternity in the glorious presence which he promises that we will see when his face is shining upon us. And we love you, God. We thank you for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and what he did. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen.